Welcome to the T-Hud Podcast. I'm Moby. I'm Leland Steele. And I'm Andy. Yes, Andy, welcome. Listener, we have a treat today. So as you know, we've had uh, Shannon from Game of Nerds on. I think she's guest hosted approximately 392 times. <laughs> and uh, she finally suggested, she said, hey, you know, I've got this, this you know, big blog company that, you know, we always talk about and and this website and uh, Andy on it uh, is interested in joining your podcast. And we said, absolutely. You know, if you're a friend of Shannon, you're a friend of ours. So welcome, Andy. Thank you. Andy, so like, just tell us a, a briefly a little bit about yourself, maybe um, how you got involved with uh, Game of Nerds, because I know our listener would be uh, interested in that, uh, what you do there, if you specialize in certain uh, areas of writing or content creation, and just some of your general kind of geek uh, interest, pop culture interest. Well, I got introduced to TGON through my girlfriend, actually. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, we're engaged now, my fiance. And she had sent me something she found on Facebook that they were looking for more content creators. So I originally started writing and I, I have written articles for them for about a year. And just a couple of months ago, I started moving into making videos for their YouTube channel and with the writing and the videos, the videos skew more video gamey right now, but I do a more professional kind of video where I talk about video games and kind of other nerdy stuff in a serious way, but I have a more relaxed fit kind of show. I also do where I might just talk about something for a few minutes. If it's not enough time to make a whole episode and with pretty much all of it, to be honest, I focus on video games. Like I said, JRPGs and Star Trek and tokusatsu japanese special effects movies and you know i'm trying to stay stay in with things that i am passionate about and that i feel like i could talk well about well i think you're going to be a a great fit uh for the show here certainly i mean spoiler alert listener we're going to discuss star trek and i'm pretty damn excited for that uh that segment in particular also some jrps so uh, JRPGs, I should say, uh, which, which I'm looking forward to. It's uh, stuff, you know, we've been doing this for, I think, over six years now and um, just really haven't touched on those topics. So, Well, to be honest, just interjecting really fast as a genre, it's 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 not like niche anymore. But the genre itself, I think, kind of grown and changed. And I kind of think that's why maybe a lot of people aren't talking about it as much right now. Just, you know, it's kind of moved from the turn-based, slower, methodical games to more, like, quick, action, fast-paced games. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's definitely going to be a good thing to discuss because, you know, sometimes when I think of JRPGs, you know, I think of saying, like, a tagline, like, it's more than Final Fantasy. And, and that's that's the, the baseline I use because I'll have people ask me, like, Oh, you like JRPGs? What are those? Like, it's Final Fantasy. Oh, yeah. And you know, even people that don't play Final Fantasy at least know what Final Fantasy is. Right. Exactly. And, and you know, that's why I said it. But you know, it's like when you kind of break it open to see what JRPGs are. You know, there's so much more. Oh God, yes. Yeah. You know what? Let's uh, let's jump into the banter segment here. Thank you for that introduction, uh, Andy. 
And uh, Leland, did you have anything you wanted to banter about? Uh, I'm not sure if this is taking one years, maybe, but I just want to talk about Resident Evil uh, 4 remake because last episode, I think it came out after we had recorded that one. So I didn't get a chance to mention it when it was kind of like fresh because it just came out last month. Man, it's so good. (laughs) It's so good. And I know you just started playing it, right, Mo? Yeah, yeah, I just started. I'm so short into it that I don't even think it's fair that I make a comment of first impressions yet. Because, listener, if you know Resident Evil 4, like, I'm at the village fight scene right in the beginning, and I died on it the first time in Rage Quit, so. (laughs) Yeah, that... (laughs) <laughs> that is very, very quick into the into the remake for sure. Yeah, and it's like, of course, I'm going to finish it. I'm going to go back and do it. But I mean, I'm just not not really into it. Uh, but yeah, so so Leland, you just thought it like really hit it, hit it out of the park. It like it, it, it kind of quote unquote fixed what was I don't want to say wrong, but maybe what was kind of of the time of that era, you know, the 2005, 2006, seven era when the original Resident Evil 4 came out, it just like smoothed everything over. It's filled in some story gaps and, and giving you a little bit more of exposition as far as the characters within and what they're doing outside of what you see with just, you know, playing as Leon Kennedy. I think Ashley's AI is much improved. I think the character of Ashley is much improved. The, maps in general the the three areas the village the castle and and the island uh all improved maybe a little bigger than they need to in some places but i mean that was a problem with the original like you would the best part or the i don't know what to say best but the cool i think one of the part that has most of the initial impacts was the village right right at the beginning of the game like where you say are with with the first time you see chainsaw guy right uh, fighting in in that little area, like those are the moments that you probably remember the best. And I like I remember getting to that section for the first time playing the original and being like, "What the absolute fuck? <laughs> Who is this guy? How am I supposed to get past this?" And then from there, the game just proceeds to get crazier, <laughs> right? Yeah, it does. Like, <laughs> it absolutely does. It's just so good. It's just so good. Like it just. I don't know if it's better than the original um i think if you were to like strictly speaking in all areas of of definition you know uh gameplay controls obviously the overall graphics um the the pacing of the story itself like if you boil it down to those like yes the the remake is better than the original it's superior in superior in all those aspects but I think that's just with the added benefit of 20 years being able to look at what was once there and now with what is capable as far as hardware goes and, and software and et cetera, et cetera, with game development. If it was any worse than it was, it would be a drastic disappointment. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's just so hard to talk about because like the first impressions that I do have probably aren't going to matter when I'm done the game. Like, for example, Leon's new voice actor is a little jarring for me. I'm exaggerating here, but I I thought the interaction between Leon and the two Spanish police officers at the very beginning of the game that drive him into the village, that that was underwhelming. 
you know, it's like one of the cops, you know, offers Leon a cigarette like he did in the beginning of the other one. But instead of some like quip, like, no, I chew gum or something like that, even though it's cheesy, it's just like, you know, no, the Surgeon General says cigarettes cause cancer, so I do not smoke them. I'm like, all right. It's not literally that, but it's lame enough to feel like. No, dude, you're being uh, way too enough. fucking petty about, uh, picky no, about that. No, no, I'm not because that is one of my favorite. No, you know this. Picky. You know this far is one picky. of my favorite parts of Resident Evil Four: the dialogue. You know that. You are going to be very disappointed then because they do cut out the cheese uh, this time. And around. I loved that cheese. I agree with you. A lot of it was really great, especially the Leon and Krauser stuff. I, that's one, the single area where I was like, okay, this kind of sucks. It, I understand why, you know, obviously we understand why. And there are some things that kind of get changed, which necessitate a few changes. But yeah, there's, <laughs> I agree. The cheesy dialogue was a great part of it. And it fit the aesthetic of the original. If it was in this remake, I don't think it would fit as much. I get I get where you're coming from. And like you say, maybe once you by the time you're done it, it maybe won't be such a big deal for you. But I I understand what you're saying. Uh, Andy, do you have any thoughts on Resident Evil 4 remake? Is that even your kind of game or? I haven't bought the remake. I played Resident Evil 4 originally when it came out on GameCube. And, you know, like you guys just said, that was quite a few years ago. It's still my favorite Resident Evil, but I'll be honest, I I haven't picked up any of the ports of it, and I haven't bought the remake yet. I don't have any doubts that it's good, but yeah, I I just haven't I haven't picked it up. Fair enough, fair enough. That's totally fair. You know, moving on to yourself, uh, do you have any pop culture news in particular you want to discuss? The only thing I I really have pop culture wise. I just work all the time, so I don't really have much time for a social life right now, to be honest. My fiance and I, we went to go see the Super Mario Brothers movie and the Dungeons and Dragons movie. And for very different reasons, we enjoyed both of them immensely. They were, for what they both were, they were both very well done, chock full of Easter eggs and legitimately good humor. And I do recommend if anybody is interested in one or both of those movies to go see them. It's definitely worth seeing seeing in, in theaters. I'm very excited for the Super Mario movie. I don't know, Leland, if you have any excitement for it. I know you like the Peaches song, no. but it's that. I don't it. give a shit. No, I okay. don't need to see it. Don't he give, doesn't don't need give to a see fuck. It. Nintendo's stupid anyways. Don't give a shit. Uh, yeah, Andy Leland is not a Nintendo fan. I mean, they do a lot of things that make me not want to be a fan as well. So I can, I can definitely understand. (laughs) See, there you go. It's it's pretty deep seated though. My hatred of it goes back decades. It's fairly deep seated. If Mario's face was on fire, Leland would not piss on it to put it out. That's, that's the hatred. He doesn't deserve peach. (laughs) <laughs> Bowser does Leland does I mean I, I will say though that um, I am glad that it you know that it's half decent <laughs> or, or 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 excellent in some aspects I hear some people saying so bring it on I mean if it's making fans of the fran- I mean it's always good when I like it when franchises like succeed and can pay fan service and still be interesting and viable like i mean i can't discredit it for that 
Well, what I what I like about it is it is a video game movie that tries to carry the aesthetic and the feelings of the video game forward as much as possible. And I think for me, that's at least the starting point for a good adaptation. And I'm not saying that's a good adaptation, but very few video game adaptations, in my opinion, have been good adaptations. But the closer they nail the aesthetic and the feel, which is nebulous, that's something that's very difficult to do, I think the better the better foundation they have. And if Super Mario Bros. is being rewarded that way, then hopefully the next movies based on video games that Hollywood Studios greenlight are more tilted towards proper aesthetics and feel, at least. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. It's, do you think... Okay, I, a question just occurred to me, and almost kind of th- relating to Resident Evil 4 remake, because... With some of the changes in RE4 make, you could almost get away with calling RE4 make an adaptation of Resident Evil 4. <laughs> if, if, if you follow me with my line of thinking here, because at what point does an adaptation kind of become pointless when the they're they're you know whoever is in charge of it, whomever may be running it, or or you know the director, or writer, or whatever, where they make like changes to be subversive or to maybe do something that they think might be cool within like this parallel lore or whatever, based off this adaptation. I mean, it's the same thing. Like when you add a, a adapt a book on a, to a film and you change the ending of the film versus what happens in the book. At what point do you think the adaptation kind of becomes pointless and like how far do the changes go where it may, it, it may be have been better off if they had just, decided to do something that was more their own thing that was like unique to them rather than twisting and like morphing an already existing intellectual property. So in your opinion, does the Resident Evil 4 make do too much twisting or a lot of twisting? No, no, I I don't think that's an example of it being like egregious. Uh, I think they, they walked the line pretty well in most areas, I would say. Yeah, I think for me, it's where it loses familiarity, where you're like, I'm basically the the original video game has served as an inspiration for the so-called remake. Now, to be honest, that's been hit or miss. So as some people may know, my second favorite console video game of all time is Silent Hill Shattered Memories. Very different than the rest of the Silent Hill series. Completely just a case of like inspired by Silent Hill, but use some of the character names and the name of the the, the franchise. So that's, that's like on the extreme end, but I love that game. But I think there's a risk there in that if you don't reattract a number of the core fans, you're, you're probably going to get a lot of disappointment in that property. You know, an example I could say that went too far. I actually like the movie okay, but um, the Resident Evil movie series, the six movies, by the time they got to movie three specifically, like we're in there, they're in the desert and it's like Mad Max. At that point, it's like this has become just an adaptation. Oh, it's fan fiction. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Fan fiction. But the first two were okay, especially the first one nailed the aesthetic pretty good. And I was pretty dialed in. And even the second, the second was so sloppy 
the action was that kind of quick cut where you don't know what's going on. You feel like you're going to lose your lunch because of the movement and the flashing. But I mean, it still had Nemesis and it still had stars and it was in Raccoon City and it was it was relatable. It was recognizable. But then, you know, it went completely out the window after that point. I think it's risky. That's the word I would use. Risky to go the adaptation route. I mean, I think the safest route is what the Resident Evil 2 remake was. I mean, that is you go to the same spots with the same characters. Most of the supporting characters are the same. If you know the original game, pretty easy to get through that one. It's like a pretty direct remake, and there's just not a lot of adaptation there. But it's safe because they did a good job with it and sold a lot. Well, okay. How about uh, Andy? What about your thoughts on um, J.J. Abrams' Star Trek trilogy? Trilogy, because that is that you know, like that's like a, a remake adaptation, whatever you want, and with a bunch of things changed, right? Just for that, its own little tangent universe now that they made for. Like, what are your thoughts on those movies compared to kind of like the OG lore of, of what you're maybe more familiar with? As movies, I do enjoy them. The first one, it was a really good way to bring Star Trek back into pop culture. And I thought they did a wonderful job casting the people they cast in the particular roles to give you the vibes of the original characters that you watched, you know, growing up or just, you know, watching through the years. The plot wasn't bad. And it was nice that they got Leonard Nimoy in to really tie the two the two different universes, two different timelines together. And I, I saw the first one in theater, so I was not disappointed. About like everybody else, I didn't really like the aesthetic choice they took with the ship. I know why they did it. I just, I, I never thought it looked really good. I didn't care for the second movie, even though, like I said, I love the people they cast in the roles. Benedict Cumberbatch is a great, great actor. And he played the part well. It's just I really wish they hadn't made him con because he could have been an original villain and it would have added two points to the movie just right there. But they also did plagiarize another Star Trek movie in there and that didn't set well with a lot of people, myself included. But the third movie, it really went back into Star Trek. And I thought it was the the best out of the three altogether and i am kind of sad they're not going to make more just because i do like to see star trek succeed but we do have the new shows as well and strange new worlds in particular just resonated with everybody and i am very excited to see where they go with that so i guess i guess overall it's not bad that's cool, and that's good that you connected it to the show because um, we're really going to dive into that in our first segment. Yeah, certainly I'm, I'm really interested in your opinion on some of the shows, uh, especially the ones that I haven't seen because there's a lot out there. I don't know if it's a golden age for Star Trek, but there's certainly a lot of content being made right now at this moment. So, I would definitely consider it a renaissance, if anything. Is it, some of it's hit and miss, but it is definitely... Definitely a good revival. Absolutely. Uh, Well, for banter, I only had one, and it's because I I did want to get both of your opinions on it. It, Kind of big picture. I mean, the story that or what inspired my banter 
is that Nintendo has won another um, court case against a ROM company. So uh, the company's name, I think, is D D Storage, all one word. And so D Storage was uh, holding a number of ROMs for Nintendo games. People could download it, you know, put it on various devices, their computer, play old Nintendo games. And that's always been a tough thing for me because I really respect intellectual property, okay? Like, I really, really do. I'm, like, pretty far on that side. But if a product is unavailable, like if Nintendo is not legally making Nintendo 64 or Super Nintendo games easily available, should it be illegal for someone to host these things? I just consider these ROMs then abandonware, and I don't see a big issue. And I think, okay, if Nintendo decides to, you know, suddenly re-release them, fine, cease and desist. But to do all this legal action to screw over people that are just trying to give away a product that is not available anywhere else, I don't see a problem with that. Do you guys? I completely agree with your sentiment. If there's no legitimate, legal, easy, for lack of a better term, way to get something and they're not selling it so there's no profit involved, it shouldn't really it shouldn't really be an issue for you to go to any particular site and download it. Now I wouldn't condone, I know you said this, I am just agreeing, but I definitely wouldn't condone downloading like a switch emulator or even like PS4, PS5, because that's still fairly new and you can just go to any corner game store or retail store and pick something up. But like you said, with N64, Super Nintendo, Genesis, any of those that, shouldn't really be much of an issue even though they're added to nintendo online yeah that's still a completely different purchase and there's a limited selection and i just i wouldn't see that as strong enough standing to to make people in general not have any say super nintendo roms even though you can get like 20 or 30 on the switch. I, I just don't think that's solid enough ground. Leland, your thoughts. I mean, I guess I agree with both of you, which is, it's kind of, it's kind of like, <laughs> it's a kind of, again, boils down to like servicing fans, right. Um, versus not, I guess, but the problem with, with that is theoretically there's still always the opportunity to make profit off of those i guess right if nintendo decides they want to do something with them it's uh, legally supposed to be well and retained within their rights to be able to do so at any time that they want right i don't at what point does it does it expire you know is there like statute limitations on this like copyright stuff Uh, i don't know if that exists or is, is a thing but I don't know what to say. I mean, I've definitely pirated plenty of things in my time. Certainly uh, uh, in my youth, at least I don't go through the trouble anymore. <laughs> it's kind of really what it boils down to. Now we're so old. It's like, no, it's so much effort just to click download, you know, from <laughs> steam. It's like, I don't want to do anything more than that. I have money now. I'm not finding a fucking torrent. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> I'm sick of dressing like a pirate. No more pirate bay for me. Arr. <laughs> you know, it is interesting 
I wonder if this is if like the crackdown on IP infringement is going to become more prevalent. Uh, like again, every court case is setting a precedent for the future. So if it's going to become a thing that like seems like it's going to be easier and easier for rights holders of, of intellectual properties to, to be able to win regardless of their size and regardless, you know, versus cause like, I think, I don't know where this court case was filed or hell or, or, or ju- um, judged on like in the U S is that where I believe it was the U S I actually have it. Uh, uh, no France. I have the article open here, France. That's interesting. Is that just because that's where the hoster of, of these ROMs w- was? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. So, cause I know in the United States, generally the courts tend to favor the side of the smaller guy. I, I mean, no idea if that's the same as in France uh, or not, but I don't know. Does worldwide precedent really affect when you're talking about these uh, worldwide corporations and like Nintendo's and the Sony's and Microsoft's, if they were to take cases, similar cases to court, would it really matter where they have to try these cases? Um, Because it's not like they just get a choice, right? They can't just pick a country and be like, let's try it here. There has to be a reason to try it in a specific area or region, right? Uh, Actually, I may possibly have an answer to that. So one thing they wanted to do in running a lawsuit in France is they have not changed the law, but this court decision makes it so that in France now, if a similar company that hosts ROMs is given a cease and desist by Nintendo, they can no longer go, oh, no, we refuse, see you in court, and while the two years of court occurs, you you can uh, download the ROMs all you want. What Nintendo has won and what they said in a statement they want everywhere is an automatic injunction. So the moment Nintendo comes down on you with a cease and desist, you must remove the ROMs, then you do the court case. And presumably, if the little guy won, you could then put the ROMs back on your website. But Nintendo is essentially fighting for injunctions. They're fighting for that it is presumed guilty if you're hosting someone else's intellectual property, not presumed innocent, you get those downloads until the court case is done. That's about, I mean, that was the only banter I had. All right, let's move on. It's time for movie musings. Uh, this uh, segment called to boldly go where we've all gone before. But uh, listener, as you know, when we set up uh, shows for guest hosts, we obviously want to do something that the guest hosts are passionate about. Um, I'm big into Star Trek right now. I kind of always have been, but uh, Andy is is really big into it. It's the first thing he mentioned. So we just want to discuss uh, the current state of uh, of Star Trek. So I think it's probably best because the films have been out of production for a while. I do want to touch on a possible Star Trek 4, but the reality is, is the shows are what we have right now. And I think maybe let's start with the... Well, I don't know if there's necessary... I should say, I don't know which one is the beginning. I mean, I would say I think it's Strange New Worlds, except I know that sprouted off of Discovery. So, um, Andy, do you know which chronologically of the current show starts first? We'll just work our way back up to Picard, I guess. Out of the new shows, it is Discovery 
that's technically the the in air quotes first and you would go from discovery to picard even though they're not really connected you would go from discovery to picard and as a tangent you could go to strange new worlds just how everything kind of worked out is kind of like back to the future too with with two parallel futures in a way it's just you can go either direction from discovery at least the beginning the beginning of discovery okay so sorry explain i have no idea what new worlds is strange new worlds like what then what is strange new worlds it literally is a branch in the timeline no i i was really just kind of making an analogous statement because i haven't seen discovery picard or strange new worlds <laughs> I'm going to get into it with Discovery. You're not missing much. I'm going to go ahead and throw the spoiler warning out. If anybody doesn't want to hear about it, go ahead and skip forward. The way it's worked out, Discovery Season 1 was the first new show we got. And everybody started bitching about it from the very beginning for legitimate reasons. It was a prequel that, honestly, it just... It didn't really fit in the timeline. They were just making it, and it seemed like they arbitrarily just said, we're going to put it right here, but we're going to change everything. And it, it, we're not going to tell you why anything's changed. It's just different now. Then we got season two of Discovery, which was season one and two were set before Captain Kirk's original Star Trek. And that's where we got the main character of Strange New Worlds, Captain Pike, who was the captain of the Enterprise before Kirk. So they spun season two off into Strange New Worlds. But because everybody was complaining about Discovery not fitting in the timeline, they just did a Futurama and put them a thousand years in the future. So now technically Discovery is the <laughs> furthest in the timeline okay. that we've been. But it just, it, it never really like took off like they wanted it to. Like this is going to be the last season that's coming out, and I believe it's five. I haven't watched it since season three. Like I legit tried to give the show the the best I could, and it just it never hooked me like the other ones. It's not bad. It just it it didn't grab me. Picard is just a continuation of Next Generation. Like it's his story, but like you could just watch that and their four movies, and then go right into this, and it's just continuing narrative. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, certainly when we get to Picard specifically, I'm going to be able to have a fairly intellectual discussion with you on that one. I'm about a little over halfway done the first season, which is the only season of Strange New World. Um, but Prod Prodigy and Lower Decks, I haven't seen anything of. Prodigy kind of got me the same way as Discovery. I tried to get into it, and once again, I don't think it's bad, air quotes, but... It doesn't resonate with me, but Strange New Worlds, I'm, I give it the chef's kiss. That and Lower Decks, the, the best Star Trek we've had in years for different reasons. Yeah, I mean, I've, okay, so I've seen some clips from Lower Decks and, and they're genius. I've not gotten into the show, but like, for example, I saw on YouTube there when they visit Deep Space Nine. Oh, I love that episode so much. Gut punch to the feels, yep. man. Mm -hmm. And it's just genius because they, you could tell they put their mind into like when they were writing it, like what does a fan want to see? Well, a fan wants to hear the DS nine music and just see the ship fly around a second time. 
which is exactly what they do. They're like, what do we do now? Let's fly the ship around a second time and just listen to the music. And it was great. <laughs> it meant so much in that particular episode. And it shows how much the people making lower decks that are, you know, like specifically to it, love the franchise and want to make the fans happy for that particular episode. Obviously they remade deep space nine in lower deck style, but they did get two of the main voice actors to come back to voice their characters just to give it more continuity, even though they probably could have got voice doubles and most people might not have been able to tell the difference, but no, they went and got the actual actors and it just meant so much just hearing them again, just, Oh, one more DS9 episode. <laughs> well, the the cast, the, all the original actors really seem to like Lower Decks. Um, I believe that was the first time that, I, I know it was just a voice role, but um, I know in Lower Decks a couple seasons back was when Jonathan Frakes um, and also, uh, you know, Riker um, and Deanna Troy appeared on the Titan for Lower Decks. And that was a big moment. You know, we had not had Jonathan Frakes playing Riker since Nemesis. And then suddenly, you know, now we have, you know, these other OG characters appearing sometimes uh, in Lower Decks. And every scene that I've seen, how they use them, it's very well written. Oh, it, it absolutely is. Not, not really any spoilers, but they got an original series actor to come back and I'm, I'm not kidding in any way. It hit me in the heart, like a freight train, just how they did it. Just my God, like you, you think that you think the show is going to be funny and it is, but it's sort of, it's like the office, like it's funny, but then when they want to make you feel, they make you feel. Yes. Yes. And, and it's great stuff. I'm really looking forward to next. Well, I don't know if it'll be released next year and I don't know what they're going to do, but they're doing an animation and live action crossover between Lower Decks and Strange New World. I am very excited about that as what? well. Directed yep. by Jonathan Frakes. He wanted that Whoa. episode so bad. He wanted anything to get that episode. He said it's his most he's most excited to direct that of like anything he can remember. So that'll be interesting. And Frakes, wow. in my opinion, is the best Star Trek director, period. Movies, TV, the guy just gets it and the actors love acting for him. Oh, yeah. Like the, yeah, the next gen. I know he directed First Contact. I can't remember if he directed Insurrection or not. He did do Insurrection. Now, I love Insurrection. Most people don't. They're no, like I, I do too. It's just, it's not the same as the other three movies. But I like it because it feels like a longer episode of Star Trek. It just feels like a two-parter that they put together. And it's just one long episode. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, and I mean, I I, I really want to jump into Frakes when we get to to Picard. Um, just, I mean, Picard's kind of where I really want to end up here. But uh, let's, let's hit up Strange New Worlds 2. Andy, what appeals to you about Strange New Worlds? Like, I actually have an answer for this for myself, but like for you, what makes you dig that show? Part of it, it's a return to form because they went back to how TOS and TNG were, they weren't serialized really. You could just watch them in any order. And in a way that kind of makes you want to make each episode as good as it can be 
since it has to stand on its own rather than a serialized, well, you know, we can kind of let maybe episode three dip because four, five, and six are going to pick up the slack. But honestly, just the casting, just you can tell everybody wants the role they've got and they put everything they've got into it. And the writing, the writing is just so good. Mm-hmm. And it just, it all works. Yes, I have liked to love every single Strange New World episode I've seen so far, except for one that was specifically meant to be comedic. Was it the uh, the story episode with the, the storybook? Uh, no, I may not have gotten to that one yet. It's where um, Spock and his fiance. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. And the whole episode, just everyone's off. It's it's because it's specifically made to be a comedy episode. And there's certain characters like uh, Nuni and Singh. Um, I forget her first name, but the tac- 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 tactical officer woman. She's not made for comedy. Like, it's not her point. Yeah, she's, she is definitely, using older comedy terms, she's the straight man to everybody else's comedian. Exactly. Yet in that episode, they tried to kind of force everybody to do uh, comedy, but otherwise it's really good. I mean, I, you know, I like Ethan Peck a lot as Spock. I Anson Mount is a great Christopher Pike, but I just have not seen enough vulnerability in him yet. And I do not count that he has a premonition of doom since the very first episode as being a character vulnerability because He is a man, seven episodes or whatever I'm in so far, is like perfect. He he is what made me look up, is there a term for Mary Sue but for men? And I found out Gary Sue. It was looking him up specifically. Because he he is perfect. Like he's got the swashbuckling kind of Captain Kirk thing, the rugged good looks. But then like he doesn't really do anything bad. He doesn't really freak out on people and have to apologize later. He, like, puts on an apron and cooks them gourmet food at the end of most days, like, in his private kitchen. He's just, like, the best person in the world. And he's, like, empathetic, yet masculine, yet strong, yet logical. And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with this man. Please have something wrong. I agree with what you said. I actually hadn't thought about that particular aspect of his character. But I do agree. But I... I think they're doing it on purpose. All first, all I'm going to say is, when you finish the season, you will understand more. Okay, and more questions will be answered. I really feel like in the next couple of seasons that they're going to work in what you were just talking about into his character. It 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 definitely feels like that's that's the way they're going to go is to make him a more rounded character. Right, and it just you know it. What what I like about Strange New Worlds is that the rest of his officer corps, you know, they all have various issues that they're trying to overcome, which is great. I mean, that's how it should be, right? Like, that's a character arc. I love the Doctor, how his daughter is, like, dying, so the only way he can save her is to perpetually have her in the transporter as, like, a pattern circling around, and he only sees her for a few minutes every few days because... If he takes her out of the transporter too much, he's going to die of her illness. And so he's on this like never or he's on, well, not never ending, but he's on a quest to find a cure. And they loop that into certain episodes. So doctor, I think his name's Mambinga. Fantastic. Uh, Number one, how she is like, 
trying to be a perfect Starfleet officer, but she's secretly been experimented on genetically, which is a big no-no, and she's constantly trying to cover that up and deal with that. Fantastic. Noonien Singh, like trying to fight the legacy of being a Noonien Singh. I think that's great. Um, Even Spock. Spock being in love, I think, is a really cool thing because he's constantly struggling with how powerfully emotional that should be. It's like they show in Vulcan culture that you're actually allowed to be emotional with your wife or husband, but Spock is like trying to overcompensate because he's always against his humanity. So she's like, you can open up with me finally. He's like, you know, I cannot. I must not. Again, great stuff all around. Uh, the aesthetic is great. I love like pastel neon colors everywhere that is so classic star trek to me like original series level star trek there's a lot to like there so i'm really looking forward to it and like you said a lot of the acting or a lot sorry a lot of the writing has been great other than that that comedy episode i wasn't a huge fan of so yeah leland have you watched strange new worlds at all no 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 i haven't seen any of this new stuff any of this newfangled stuff well hopefully from us you're kind of gleaning what direction if you do want to Want to check it out where to go. But uh, do you have anything you want to discuss on Strange New Worlds, Andy, before we jump into Picard here, the the big fish? I don't really want to spoil anything. Honestly, I'm just waiting patiently, as patiently as I can, for for new content. Just It is easily the best. I'll say non-nostalgic, even though there is a lot of nostalgia in it. The best non-nostalgia trick, as it's trying to do its own thing without just leaning into another another show entirely well i i appreciate that and i think listener does too of not uh not spoiling uh too much there so uh, let's jump into picard uh which is cool because by the time this episode releases the picard finale will be over for season three the show will be complete and if listener likes what he or she hears they can watch the whole thing binge it First, before we discuss season three, Andy, I would like, in separated from season three, I would like your opinion on seasons one and two of Picard. They're very hit and miss. Just as a fan, I I like them, but I'm fully admitting just I like them as a fan. Right. I love Next Generation. That was the first Star Trek I I watched. You know, grew up watching it with my mom, and then I moved into the other shows. And... I mean, for better or worse, I'm glad we got season one and two because they did have some really good parts and they had some really, really bad parts and stuff that just, why are you doing that? Like, there's there's just no reason for you to do the thing, like, the, I'm sorry, in real life, like, the way they've written the episode and the characters, just, why are you doing that? Like, you're just doing it just to do it. I'm glad we got one and two to get three. Yes. Just out of the out of the three seasons, hands down, without question, season three is the best one. Yeah, it's I, I, I'm I'm really I don't want to say torn. I'm just curious how Picard works as an entity. So, for example, Seven of Nine. Now, Seven of Nine, you probably know this, Andy, because you're a big Star Trek fan. She was just tossed into Voyager as sex appeal to boost ratings in season six. But you know, you fast forward 25 years later and Jerry Ryan's Seven of Nine is now like a key, key, legit character in the Star Trek universe. 
Yet, like, there is no natural way she fits into this, the next generation thing without them being like, Jerry Ryan's awesome, let's put her in the show. But she does do awesome in all three seasons, in my opinion. And that's fantastic. Whereas I felt, I felt a lot of the supporting characters didn't fit. Now, Agnes Girardi, I really feel didn't fit, but her character arc, which is complete, and I will not spoil, completely redeemed her for me as this person that didn't fit in the galaxy. What they did with her at the end of season two, I'm like, yep, this is awesome. This is perfect. Whereas I'm incredibly disappointed with some of their character choices. You know who should borderline sue is that New Zealand kid they have as, um, I forget his real name in the show because he was barely in season two, but the the kid with the uh, the sword? Elnor. Yeah, Elnor. Like, what the hell happened to his character in this series? Right? They pretty much, like, soft wrote him out of the show. Yes. Because he was there and then just, he's gone. And, and it was like an awkwardly write-out. It was like, uh, okay, well, I guess they're writing him out but like what was wrong with him like didn't he have somewhere to go yeah he never got like a goodbye or any kind of like finality to his character and his arc is just pretty much one day you go to sleep he's there you wake up and he's gone and nobody talks about it yeah and and i agree with you i think uh i think it was hit and miss between season one and two uh season one the highlight for me was was data just everything to do with data. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Data is also a highlight of season three, but uh, you are not wrong there. He he's fantastic. He's he's so good. Season two, I felt the highlight was other than Girardi at the very end. Q, I love Q. Season two, Q plays a huge part. I love what they did with him, beginning to end. I was dialed in. What what were your thoughts of Q on season two? I've always loved the character because John Delancey just brought that particular energy and he outright said, I, I played the character this particular way to counter Patrick Stewart's portrayal of Captain Picard, which makes perfect sense. And he still brought that. Yeah, I'm an ass, but it's because I love you and I have a reason for doing what I'm doing and you have to figure it out. I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to hold your hand. And it, I mean, it was a very emotional arc for him. It was, and it was an arc that made perfect sense. So I have a buddy that I watch all of Picard with. I've seen every single episode with him in a watch party, every single one. He's not the biggest Q fan. He kind of tolerates him, but he called Q a villain in season two near the end. I said, don't you dare call him a villain. He's a foil. Absolutely. That is probably the most apt term to give him. He is a foil of Picard and without spoiling it too much in the last episode of season two of Picard, Picard himself realizes that Picard always is like, he's evil. He's bad. I don't want him around. He's annoying. In the very last episode, Patrick Stewart finally realizes who Q was to him, which is a mirror image that enhanced him as a captain because You can't really define yourself in what your edges are if you don't have something to compare yourself to. And, you know, Q showed Picard what his opposite was, for better or for worse. And only at the very end does Picard appreciate him. 
touching on that for just a moment, you, you're absolutely right. But I do wish we could have seen a little bit more of you know the mirror image of Picard that you that you brought up, even just one or two episodes more dedicated to that because I love what they did with that just to show like the butterfly effect. Basically, one little change over time makes everything completely different, and you really don't know how different it can be. Right, and one thing that will I don't think we'll ever get fully consummated is the defining moment of Picard until the very end, even though the end has not occurred yet. Presumably it's on Thursday of this week, but they could make Picard keep going on in a different show. But the defining moment for Jean-Luc Picard was when he became Locutus briefly and went to the yes. board. Movies, TV, everything. There was like previous to Locutus and post Locutus. Well, who sent the Enterprise into the Delta Quadrant and introduced them to the Borg and forced the Enterprise on a path that would make John Luke Picard confront the Borg? It was Q in the the, sh- the episode Q. Who? Boom. It it absolutely was, and I I'm gonna segue into a different show for just a moment. That's one of the better episodes of Enterprise because indirectly they answer the question of was Q just being a dick and throw them in the way of something they knew they couldn't beat just to make them scared? Or was he actually doing something good because the previous episodes that he had been in up to Q who did end with him saying, this is the lesson I was trying to teach you or the characters realizing, Oh, this is the information I need. And that's one of the higher points of Enterprise was that it did actually answer that question without telling you, like, this is why Q did it. Yeah, I I actually, I mean, it's it's like conspiracy theory level shit here, but I do think Q did both John Luke Picard and the Federation a favor with that early introduction to the board because, of course, Wolf 359 was a terrible event where, you know, large portion of the fleets massacred by the Borg, but... You think like Voyager when it encountered the Borg when it was lost. If they had no clue who the Borg were and they were alone oh, they in the been screwed, they were they'd be fucked. They'd yeah, be fucked. That series would have been two seasons long. <laughs> they, they'd be fucked. I mean, Q in a way sets in the destiny of the galaxy in a way that ultimately turns out to be good. And I'm not arguing that Q was necessarily good, though to me he feels that way. But what I am arguing is that Q is necessary for the galaxy to be as it is. He is definitely necessary, as was the entire continuum. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely wouldn't classify him as a hero in the same vein as Cisco, Picard, Janeway, or even like a white knight hero. He's honestly more of a neutral anti-hero at best. Just, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to do it the way I want to. I'm not really worried about people's feelings or how I get to the end. Just as long as I get to the end. Right. And I mean, I think that was a priority for Star Trek because like the Federation has always appeared to be white knights. Like, you know, they at least they think of themselves that way. Like, you know, we're this justice organization in the galaxy. We just want to be friends and pals with everyone. And they're not. There's an arrogance to that. There's there's a darkness to that. There's an ignoring history to that. 
And what I love about the next generation in general is the very first episode of the freaking show. Episode one, season one, is Q taking the bridge crew, Picard first among them, and trying to make them look at themselves in the mirror. That's Encounter at Farpoint. That's the genius of that first episode of the entire series. And I, I thought it was brilliant. I mean, I have Encounter on Farpoint. I'm looking at it right now. I've got it on a VHS. I asked for it for Christmas uh, when I was like 11. Like, I loved that. And uh, yeah, I mean, we we digress, but I guess we both love that part of season two. We could say that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But we got to jump into season three and we'll try to be as spoiler free as possible because I know Leland is going to watch it. Um, and I think I think I can mostly do that. But like, Andy, I'll just ask you, like with season one and two, what are your thoughts of season three so far? Picard. Best season of the show, like I said earlier, emotional roller coaster. A lot of things I didn't expect to happen have happened. And I very much like the character of Shaw. Just he he grew on me. Mr. No, I should say. Oh, no, not. Oh, yes. Mr. No, the amount of Mr. No memes I've collected on my phone to send to my buddy Joe. No, no, no. The dipshit from Chicago. That's what I call him. Dipshit from Chicago. I don't even call him Shaw with my buddy he's just like hey i hope dipshit from chicago makes it you know longer or does this or that because what shaw does like again this goes back to the federation being white knights and it being a science fiction show and we're out there and we're do-gooders and we're with aliens and shaw is literally like you plucked a guy from 2023 chicago put him in a spaceship in command what the fuck are we doing i'm not going i'm not going in the opposite direction of my orders I'm not going to go against this ship that I don't know how powerful it is. He was literally following the rules. He was doing what a captain should have. He's doing what a captain should do to save his, well, not just yep. save his crew, just like maintain his day job. He's trying to do his day job. In the brilliance of Picard season three is you see shot first and they don't do anything wrong in portraying him, but he appears wrong. You're like, why is this guy stopping our heroes? Why is he saying no to everything they want to do? And then you realize when he starts talking about, you know, taking care of his crew and his responsibilities, you're like, dude, this is just, this is just an ordinary guy trying to do the right thing as a captain. I, and I love how they very subtly explain why he is the way he is when uh, Captain Picard was giving his big speech about Star Trek, or I'm sorry, Starfleet being his family and he was talking about his friend Jack and Shaw was like, yeah, I had a Jack Crusher too. And this is what happened to mine. I didn't have the luxury of all these other things that you did. This is how I had to survive. And it really just juxtaposed them so well of like, well, that does explain why he is the way he is, and he has a legitimate reason for the things that he's done so far. And I won't spoil what that legitimate reason is, but unfortunately, this is a podcast. Listener can't see the video, but we do actually record with video, so I'm going to try to do for you, Andy, a little bit of uh, acting, but that scene in the bar yes. on the Titan when Shaw's explaining, and he's like yes. quivering. He's barely peeking as he's trying to explain to Picard 
like and he's shaking from nerves and post-traumatic stress disorder this like strong man i loved his physical acting todd stashwick in that scene where he's like this he's like this scared child all of a sudden because of what happened to him in that one event and that that shows the vulnerability that you were talking about captain pike yes not expressing yet which made him a more human character it made made you empathize with him and like oh shit he's not just a dick he for lack of better terms he can't help it at this at this exact moment yeah exactly exactly now he's he's fantastic character i hope we see a lot more of him in the future i know todd stashwick loves the character you got to figure out a way to do it work him in in the future but uh I mean, he's fantastic. You're just going to hear a lot of fanboying from me from season three. That is exactly what season three is made for, though. It was just made to hand you on a silver platter of, here's the Star Trek you wanted. But you know what? Every single member of the original cast is giving it on, like, eight cylinders if you were a V8 engine. Like, all of them are delivering some of their best acting ever. And I really feel like it's because they became friends making the show in real life and they stayed friends. Like they're still friends in real life, even now. And it just bleeds over into their characters of these guys are legitimately happy to see each other again. And they legitimately care this much about each other. Well, and I think I I have to mention a slight, uh, a slight spoiler here because it's very relevant to this topic. So spoiler alert listener, but when Data gets successfully combined with Lore and his daughter and Data and uh, B4, I think he's four of them, that they all combine. There's also one of the Soons. Oh, yeah. One of the Soons is in there. And suddenly Data is like 99% a normal human in his new aging positronic body. And it's it's that scene when they're first finally all together in the briefing room and uh, data says, you know what? There's nowhere else. Or he says something like, I always thought I wanted to be somewhere else, but there's nowhere else I'd rather be. That is perfect. Cause right. Brent Spiner said, I never want to wear the makeup again. I never want to be data again. And I'm like, wait, 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 what if you could reach data's final form and you don't need to wear makeup? And he's like, all right, I'm in. I just, I love, I love how data is like, like there and he still has some not emotion chip stuff but just like his normal emotions allow him to be funny now yeah i hope we die quickly yeah i was gonna say i do i do love the innocent child humor that he that he seems to have at this moment since from a certain point of view he is a a child growing up since he's now a human and he has all this new information and emotions and stuff. And I do like the particular sense of humor that Brent Spiner has chosen to use. But it is just a testament of him as an actor as well, seeing all the different parts over the course of time that he's played. And you see him just go from one to the next to the next to the next. Yes, before he stabilized, when he was going through the other characters, like boom, 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 boom in his head, that was such good acting by Brent Spiner mastery oh yes and this might be the last even little spoiler i wouldn't even consider it a spoiler i i love that spot got a cameo 
that that just got me right in the feels as well. Just he loved his cat. <laughs> well, he loves the new spot because uh, Brent Spiner said the original cat in the show hated him and would always like bite and scratch him. Well, he's he's a, he's a cat, you know. Don't do that. <laughs> like he's like this cat's the easiest thing to do. I just like put it on the ground and it nudges me, or I hold it and it purrs and licks me. He's like it's like the perfect pet. Yeah, no, no, Picard. Picard's fantastic. I really like Vladek, played by Amanda Christopher Plummer. Plummer's daughter. Yeah, Amanda Plummer. Now, Christopher Plummer, uh, General Chang, the Shakespeare quoting Klingon in Star Trek Six, is my favorite Star Trek bad single bad entity of all time. Any series, anything. I love Chang, and his daughter, who I like since Pulp Fiction, like she goes back that far. Amanda Plummer. She's so good at just playing unhinged characters. Just like let them go absolutely psychotic. And she's just so good. She absolutely is. I honestly just 100% believed like this character is unhinged and batshit crazy for, for lack of better terms. And just the way she delivered it. Yeah. I'm like, is, is, is Amanda Plummer like this when the cameras are off? Like, because she doesn't break character ever. She's constantly twitching and being like insane. And I'm like, wow, like this is really good acting or something. And smoking her space cigarettes. <laughs> smoking her space cigarettes. Yeah. Fuck solids. I, I won't. I don't want to delve. Into I know. That. No. I think, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's like, you know, that's that's detached from anything else. If As long as we don't explain that. But it's it was a. Uh, you know, a good part of the show. You know, one thing I really want to pick your brain on, Andy, and this is all speculation, just to kind of tie up this segment, but where do you see, see Star Trek going from here? I mean, we know we're getting Strange New Worlds, a couple more seasons. Discovery's ending. Presumably Lower Decks is carrying on, but Picard is ending. Where where do you think Star Trek is going to go in maybe the next five or ten years? Well, God willing, we get a Titan show because since season three of Picard, a lot of people have been voicing their opinions that Shaw in particular and the rest of the Titan crew that we see are, are plenty good enough to warrant their own show. And I kind of would like to see that and lower decks continuing in tandem, like they did with like TNG and DS nine aired fairly, I'm blanking on the word together for a while. And then DS9 and Voyager did it when TNG ended. But I would like to see them go in different directions. Because Lower Decks could stay just the funny, everyday everyday man life of the people. While Titan could be advancing the timeline in a serious way. Like, these are the real threats to the Federation. And they could eventually tie it into stuff we find out in Discovery. Yeah. I mean, I like a lot of the new younger characters they brought in in season three. I like Jack Crusher. I I like uh, Crash LaForge. She's great. Seven, she's kind of in that middle ground between youngish but also oldish. But I mean, she she if they move forward, she's probably going to be a leader of some sort. So I, I like where they could potentially go with that. I definitely wouldn't be upset if they made a Titan show and if they just made her the main character of the show, because I definitely feel like she could carry a show as the lead. She, she has the gravitas and you can tell she doesn't take herself too seriously when she's acting serious. And, and that, that would not 
that would not bother me in any way if we found that information out. Yeah, I completely agree. I I hope we see it. I I think we will. I just think Jerry Ryan is like at the perfect age to play a mature Star Trek character taking command, whether it's legacy or something else. I just can't see them not using her, especially if she's willing. It would be foolhardy if they didn't. Same with Todd Stashwick, a.k.a. Captain No, a.k.a. Shaw. He'd be fantastic. I do really like Jack Crusher. I like his intensity. I like how different he is from his mom. I mean, I really don't have many complaints for like the characters. Like, Worf is perfect. Riker, who is my favorite character in TNG, he's perfect, pretty much. The only one who isn't is, is I, I hate to say it, but Patrick Stewart is so old. He's trying. He's trying. But, like, the voice is literally not there. He doesn't have enough vocal cord power to hold up with his friends anymore. One of the things that's really made me ponder Picard season three is, like, Patrick Stewart is about 20 years older than the rest of his officers. Now, when they were filming the show in the mid-80s, and he's 50 and they're in their 30s, early 30s, who cares, right? Like a 50-year-old's still pretty spry if you keep in shape. Same goes for the movies, you know, when he's in their sit his 60s and they're in their 40s, whatever. But now that he's like 80s, almost, I think he's like pushing 90, and they're still in their 60s, but like really good shape, the cast overall. Like really healthy as far as it looks. And now that 20-year difference is just so obvious. I don't know if you agree with me, Andy, but, like, I still love Picard. But, my goodness, he he's having trouble keeping up with his other friends. I don't disagree at all. I do kind of wish they would steer him in more, if he is going to be in any future Star Treks. They could steer him in sort of like a um, grandfatherly mentor capacity and i feel like that would suit him just as an actor too because that seems to be the kind of person he is in real life just you know the the uncle or grandfather that is nice to everybody and that you love to be around because he's always got something funny to say or yeah if you're a kid he gives you a piece of candy or something you know what i do i'll throw an idea out there andy feel free to shoot this down but this has crossed my mind we have a confirmed starfleet academy show confirmed that is that is true. I just I'd forgotten that for a moment. Just throw Picard as the headmaster, who can have some character building scenes, but he's the old headmaster. Throw the rest of his bridge crew as like you know various instructors. You know you've got Riker doing a command module. You have Geordi doing engineering. You have Worf doing tactical. Very easy because these legacy characters now that they've done a show they really like because they hated Nemesis. And they weren't really big on insurrection, but they love season three of Picard. It's rejuvenated them. If they want to make more Star Trek, I, I would just toss, I would build Academy around them. Why not? Without throwing spoilers out there, I agree with you. And I think the previous episode of Picard could very easily be segued into that. And I know you know what I'm talking about. I do. And that, that is not a bad idea in any way. And if they wanted to, they could very easily dovetail just right into that. And they could just have Patrick Stewart just spend most of his time in his office slash ready room. And, you know, whenever people interact with him, he's just in his big leather chair drinking Earl Grey. Yeah. 
hundred percent. That way you might, you might be able to incorporate Janeway in. See, here's the problem. Like, I think we are going to get a seven spinoff show, but Jerry Ryan and Kate Mulgrew do not like each other at all. And so I think it's, even though it would be a natural fit for the two of them to act together, I don't think they really want to. And so you could probably loop Janeway into the uh, Starfleet Academy too. They could. I mean, I'm kind of stretching here, but the cameo that she got in Nemesis, it showed that they were on uh, her and Picard specifically. They're moving that direction. Yeah. Like they obviously get along and they know each other. So it wouldn't be that much of a stretch to just have her in a Picard show. It wouldn't be like, how did these two people even know each other without some kind of like flimsy plot device? Oh, we could talk Star Trek for hours, Annie. Maybe we should do it another time, but I think we do need to move segments here. So, but uh, thanks so much for your insight on that. That was, that was genuinely a lot of fun. And if anything we said sounds uh, intriguing, listener, you know, hit us up on the social media, the Facebook page. I'd be happy to talk about Star Trek with you. Again, no spoilers as much as possible, but uh, if anyone wants to engage me, absolutely. And, and and thanks, Andy, for, you know, shedding light kind of on the whole series. I had fun as well talking about it and shameless plug on TGON. I do have a question and answer segment I've started and I would very much enjoy answering any Star Trek related questions that anybody may have. I I have a game that I play with my fiance. She didn't believe I was as big a fan as I was. I said, you could just take a picture of the TV with next generation and I could tell you what episode it is as long as it wasn't (laughs) stock footage. And she didn't believe me. So she took a picture of, uh, it was on BBC at the time and she's like, okay, what's this episode? And I said, oh, it's yesterday's enterprise. And it was just a picture of Captain Picard. She's like, how the fuck did you know that? <laughs> you you must have loved, and I won't like give any context to the scene, but where Data addresses his memories and they appear physically, you must have loved that. Yep. It, it was very touching. Yeah, that was, that was definitely a great scene. There's so many great scenes. I, like, for me, listener, Picard season three is a 10 out of 10. I'd watch the others. You know, the first season might have been a 6 out of 10. The second might have been a 7 out of 10 for me. 10 out of 10 for the third. And admittedly, like, to watch season two, you need to watch one. You could start season three at the beginning of season three, and it stands on its own. And I I wouldn't blame anybody for actually doing that, because I know the first two aren't everybody's cup of tea. Yeah, that's actually a great point. Listener, don't gauge season three based on one and two. If you want to like plow through one and two, no matter what, great, fantastic. But don't let them turn you off of season three. And if you're in doubt, just start with season three. All right. Well done, gentlemen. Let's move on to the video game variety show titled JRPG, the classic. Another segment that I'm not going to have much input in. I have never played a JRPG. Uh, but Andy, why don't you go ahead and start off telling us what you like so much about them? Maybe give a loose definition uh, of a JRPG, and uh, we'll start from there. I've been trying to do some research on this when, from the time you guys had contacted me about this podcast, because I didn't want to give the best answer I possibly could for this specifically, because it's such a nebulous theme. And like a strict definition, it's literally just a role-playing game that's made in Japan, like 
Dragon right. Quest or Final <laughs> Pretty Fantasy. self-explanatory, yeah. Yeah, and like that that's the textbook definition. A JRPG, like to me, it's still the old school turn-based, your party's on the right side of the screen most of the time, and the enemies are on the left. And you take turns attacking until the you know until the enemy's dead or you game over unfortunately but it also has to have like a a deep engaging story and that's kind of why i got into rpgs because you know my mom she read to me quite a bit you know from when i was a baby and it it really nourished my my love of reading that's you know very much still love reading to this day and that's part of the reason i like jrpgs so much because it's just you're in the book like you're still going down a a set path but you're doing it you're not just you know reading it on a page you're you're moving the character you're interacting yeah ab- absolutely and i think you start to i think there's certain personalities probably myself and yours andy that are really just like susceptible to the whole story thing like we want stories we crave stories to hear them to be involved in them and the beauty of jrpgs is i feel like you tend to identify with one or more characters which may not be the main character but you get invested in them and you know that's like okay well i guess this is a spoiler about final fantasy 7 but come on fuck it's been like 25 years lots of people loved Aerith. when Aerith dies you know it's like People were emotional. It's considered one of the most emotional scenes in all of video games. I was actually about to bring that up that even now, yeah, it's still considered one of the, the top emotional and defining moments in in a JRPG and in gaming in general. Do you remember the first JRPG you played, Andy? I'm, I'm chuckling saying this. Just you'll know as soon as I say it. The first one I actually played was Final Fantasy VII. I, I was on the Final Fantasy VII bandwagon. And it, it got me into the genre. And I still stick to Final Fantasy to this day. Like, it's had its ups and downs, but I'm going to be a fan until the end. But, yeah, you know, obviously, over time, I've branched out into a lot of lot of other series. Um, you know, Persona. I've been getting really big into Persona. Once again, Persona 5 got me into Persona. I've gone back into playing more of those. The Tales series, Tales of also very good but they're not turn-based rpgs are you talking like t- tales of symphonia yes yes one? tales of symphonia <laughs> um vesperia tales of berseria is also really good um the dragon quest series i played dragon quest 11 when it came out that was the first one i actually played through and beat and that's made me go back to start that series from the beginning and i'm actually up to four now dragon quest 4 playing the mainline games but, you know, JRPGs are just, there's so many different series, and this is why it's kind of a nebulous term. Like, they're, each series is kind of different. Like, you know, they're not all just your guy's one spot, the other guy's in one spot, and, you know, you, you duke it out. You know, a lot of times they're action-based RPGs that might play, like, a Legend of Zelda game with slightly more RPG elements. Sometimes there's really not combat to speak of but sometimes they're just combat oriented sometimes they're just story oriented like persona 5 for instance the combat is very good but you can definitely say the persona series 
you're playing it for the story more than anything else in the game. Yeah, it's funny you uh, keyed in on Persona there because uh, our old co-host here, our original third co-host who was a permanent co-host for about two years, he loves Persona. Like, he swears by Persona. I, I bug him about it all the time. Um, So it's interesting to hear that you're into it. Leland, on your end, so you said you really have never played a JRPG. Like, is there something offensive about the basic mechanics of a JRPG? Or did you just, you just weren't interested? I think it was just a genre that I just, it never drew me in. And I mean, obviously, like you say, Andy, like, the it's almost like effable ineffable the description of jrpg these days just because like clearly there have been you know what, what you may stereotypically think of a jrpg those types of elements have been you know implemented into western games for you know better part of two decades by now right so certainly aspects of this genre i've i've been exposed to and i've enjoyed certainly but yeah strictly speaking when you like I was never into the Final Fantasies, Dragon Quest, like Persona, like none of that stuff. It just, I don't know. I don't, they just never drew me. Even though like Ghost Marty has always liked those types of games, I think he and because he and I, our tastes are are pretty aligned. Like ninety nine percent of the time, this is just kind of one of those instances where his kind of branched where mine didn't. It, certainly, Ghost Marty has said that I would really enjoy like Persona Five, and it has been on my list to attempt to tackle this video game genre and and uh, experience it and it, i certainly still plan to for sure i i would definitely recommend if you were to get into persona specifically i would start with uh, persona 5 royal as it it honestly streamlines a lot of the quote-unquote gripes people have with jrpgs like it smooths out say the grinding process and the battle process to where after a while you literally don't have to engage in combat except for the occasional boss battle and you you can just sit back and enjoy the story i i definitely would recommend starting starting with that but be prepared to put a good couple of hundred hours into it it's unfortunately <laughs> it, none of them are short that's a good recommendation uh andy now the rpg that i started with was uh final fantasy 6 or three out in North America, but it's it's really six. Did you ever go back and play six later or no? Oh yes. Um over time I've I've ended up playing pretty much every Final Fantasy over time. Some of them it took a little longer to grow on me than others, but I do know that six it's a fan favorite and I see why, because it is it is definitely like a hallmark game in general and it's definitely a high point of the final fantasy series and i just think it does a fantastic job like with only 16-bit graphics of telling a very elaborate story mm -hmm. you know the player the the characters split off and you might be following just like one character for an hour or two and then maybe a group of other characters that are over here it was just very um very creative for what it could do with its time as similar as it was to previous and, you know, incidentally later titles, it really was kind of original and ingenuitive in the capacity that you're talking about that you're not really playing one 
narrative. You you are, but it's one narrative that's made of many different narratives that you play through all of them and eventually, you know, like tributaries going into a river, eventually they all become one larger narrative. And I know you 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 do know what I mean. Like the previous games in the series, it was always here's four or in Final Fantasy Four's case five heroes and you gotta go stop this guy. Like this is the thing you have to do. And you know, six kind of turned that on its head. And it's like, here's here's this thing, but then here's all these other things, and here's everybody that has their own life going on, has their own stories going on, and how they basically link up and how they mesh. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I you know the Okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot here because, well, I was going to include Final Fantasy VII in this, but I I thought your answer would just be go finish Final Fantasy VII. So I own Final Fantasy VII. I mean, it's on my computer, but it, you know, on Steam. But I own Final Fantasy VII. I have beat Midgar, but then I didn't really get much past that. But I also own Final Fantasy VIII, nine, ten, Tactics and 12 and i'm wondering like should i just continue chronologically or is like one of those games like say 12 or 9 like so fantastic that i should go to it as my next final fantasy i actually have a a longer winded multi-part answer for that all the games in the series unless you see final fantasy whatever dash two or three they're not connected in any way other than maybe an Easter egg that is just poking at something that's happened before. Like Sid, for example. There's always a guy named Sid, but it's just a trope of the series. Or the the Chuckabos. But number one, I would say Beat 7. It, it's a fantastic game. Just visually, it hasn't aged that well. But to me, it kind of gives it a charm. But the story, the story is still top-notch. But also... I would delve straight into nine as it plays similarly to seven, but it does everything better. It literally just does everything that any final fantasy before it did just better, but also tactics as even as a side game, I always put my chips in tactics is the best final fantasy ever made. And it's not even a numbered title, but it is, it's, I have a cat named Ramza. One of my cats, I named Ramza. I mean, admittedly, as a side game, it still gives you, in a sort of convoluted way for how it was made, as, with the job system and how many different jobs and how many different combinations you can make with your skills and abilities, it still gives you the best core Final Fantasy experience, I, I personally think. 12, 12 was really good. 12 was my favorite, just my personal favorite for a long time. But over time, I just, I've kind of liked the other ones better. And it plays a just different enough from the others that I would put it in its own category. Um, you know, if you play nine, you play tactics and you beat seven, definitely play 12. It's good. It's just different enough. I wouldn't, I wouldn't lump it in the same category because that's when they started branching out and with each title, they wanted to make everything different just to see what sticks. I mean, I don't want to stick too much on Final Fantasy because the whole point is like to say that there's there's more to life JRPGs than Final Fantasy. I want to make a recommendation for you, Andy, if you've never played it or you're into retro gaming. 
like it's not even close my favorite jrpg of all time is front mission 3 if you've ever played it or heard of it you know i never got into the front mission games i know what they are and i know they just remade the first one for switch and it's one of the uh the next games i'm about to pick up on there and just kind of delving back for just a moment i'm gonna pick up the final fantasy remasters no, the, the Front Mission remake is definitely one I want to play because I want to get into that series. It just looks like everything I would like. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, it's really cool because both, you know, you, you upgrade your mechs, but you also upgrade your character. So it kind of increases, there's like dual level upgrading going on. Also, I don't know if the first game in the series, the Switch remake, which I, I do know of and I want it myself, uh, has this or not, but... Front Mission 3 has its own, like, internal internet, but it's, like, from, like, 1998 internet, and it's just, like, you know, hilarious. Like, you'll go onto, like, the Ministry of Japan's website, and there'll be, like, Happy Pandas, like this on the front page, and you're like, yep, that's (laughs) 1990s, 100%. And just the character tropes, you know, you've got, like, your main character who's, like, constantly angry for no reason, just like Leland, you know, it's... It's like comforting. It's like he's my one of my best friends. And when I boot up Front Mission 3, there he is yelling at something. <laughs> I mean, that, that that is a staple of JRPGs in general as well. If they're not amnesic, they're angry. Or they're both. It, it just it typically is one or the other 90% of the time. It's like, you will never get games with that kind of writing again. I'm not making a political statement here at all. I'm honestly not. But, you know, you also have that other character trope of, like, the sidekick, but he's, like, really loose and just wants to have fun. And from Mission 3, his name's Ryogo, and it's like, you know, you pass a school bus with teenagers, and Ryogo's like, oh, I wonder if one of them wants a date. It's like, you could never get away with that nowadays. Absolutely agree with that that mentality. It's it's just that cheesy writing from the 90s, right? It absolutely is. And I think the closest we would get to that is from another another series I've gotten into recently that's considered a staple of the genre. We just didn't get a lot of them. The um, Trails games, Trails in the Sky, Trails of Cold Steel. There's one character in there that fits that to a T. And thinking about it now, you don't see that in games anymore, but... That's the only modern game I can think of that has that because they just seem to steer away from that. But you are correct in later 90s, early 2000s. I think that was the golden age of RPGs, but more specifically the writing of the... the, They were taking risks to see what would work, and we got a lot of good stuff out of it. Yeah, and I mean, for me, that generation, the GameCube, PlayStation 2, I think that's sixth generation officially. That's what killed the the generation after killed RPGs for me. Now, admittedly, I'm a Nintendo fanboy. I've never owned a never owned a PS3, PS4, PS5, Xbox, anything like that. But I did mention Tales of Symphonia early earlier. I beaten it. I did not particularly like it. Like I'm saying this with like a laugh on my face. That's the first and only game that took me 10 years to beat because it was so long. There was nothing driving me forward. It was like, I joke with Leland like he's a completionist. He finishes stuff that he absolutely hates. And that was like one time where I finished something I really didn't want to finish, but I had already invested like 100 hours in it. How can I stop? 
It's like the snowball is rolling. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I mean, you, you've already committed and you've gone that far. You you got to finish it just to finish it at that point, whatever, whatever it may be. And that is my main problem with JRPGs. And I know this is not really on the list of talking points, but it's fluff. It's filler. And I felt Tales of Symphonia first among the JRPGs I've ever played has filler, especially in the mid to late game. The, the beginning game's fine. It's great. It's what kept me going for so many hours. And just like filler. That's the biggest problem I have with the, the trail series that I mentioned a minute ago. I don't know if uh, you or you know, the listener hasn't played them, but they start out, they usually start out pretty quick, but then you get about 60 or 70 hours of, of filler that advances the story, but it, it, it's just filler without a lot of action. And then you get like a faster paced ending that ties into the next game. And I'm, I've played Cold Steel 1, 2, 3, and 4, and I didn't put less than 130 hours in any of them, and I could easily say at least half of that was the side quests or just exposition and cutscenes of while we're doing a thing. Yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. That's exactly what it feels like. I mean, I guess I was going to say, you know, what JRPGs are we currently playing? Leland's not playing any. I'm playing Front Mission 3. Surprise, surprise. That's the only one I'm playing at the moment. Are you playing any JRPGs at this moment there, Andy? I started the Tactics Ogre remake that came out in November, I believe. I'm playing that on my PS5. And I'm playing Final Fantasy VII Crisis Core. That they, the remake of that on also on PS5. Cool. Well, I mean, the, the, the other, the, or sorry, I should say the, the last talking point I've got here is, are we planning to play any new or new to us JRPGs in the near future? Um, Andy, do you have any on your list to, that you haven't played yet, but you're going to, or even an old one, I guess you want to go back to top, just top of my head, new one coming out. It comes out in July is uh, trails into reverie. And it's sort of a, a coda to the trails of cold steel series. And playing through those four, I really want to see what they do with, with that. There's a bunch of legacy characters that are going to be in it. And it branches into the new, the new story that they're making with the um, Kuro no Kiseki, which is what Trails is called in Japan, the Kiseki series. And they're tying into that story as a bridge. And I am looking forward to Final Fantasy VII Remake Part Two. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When's that released? Do you know? December, I believe. I know it's, I know they said it's towards the end of this year, but I do believe it's December specifically. Okay. Now this actually brings up a question I, I would want to ask you, because I'm assuming you've beaten part one. Yes. Of this Final Fantasy yes. VII remake. Okay. That switch to action based combat and whatnot. Does it still feel like a JRPG to you? Only in the sense of it's it's specifically Final Fantasy VII. If it was the exact same game, but the characters didn't look like Final Fantasy, I would honestly think it was you know a Western RPG, like uh, an Elder Scrolls or even a, a Fallout, because it it plays closer to those. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing per se, but I definitely wouldn't classify it as a traditional JRPG. It's it's very much action based. What I what I would have done with the Final Fantasy VII remake, I would have kept it turn based. 
I would not have gone with maybe as good graphics as it has or make uh, Midgar as big as it is, apparently. I But what I would have done is just focused on the writing and the story, which is where Final Fantasy VII, well, and all, I guess most Final Fantasies have their best traits, but I would have got, gotten like a kick-ass fan cast, basically, to do the voiceovers. I'm talking like Keith David as Barrett. And, you know, I don't know, Anna Taylor-Joy as Aerith or something. Like, get famous people to do all these these voice acting roles. I don't know. That That's what I wish. That's what I would have done with Final Fantasy VII if I could have. The way they wrote the last third of the game, I definitely would have taken a downplay in graphics and side content if we'd have gotten more more game. Because the first two-thirds of the game, it, it's Final Fantasy VII... The PS1 game just looks better. The The third act is where they really make it their, their own game. And yes, if they'd have made the, remade the entire game at one time in that style, I, I think that would have been better. I, I just, I really hope part two and part three are as good as that last third. And I would not be upset with any kind of star-studded voice cast, obviously. I'm not. I'm not against any of their voices. They seem to fit, but I'm. I'm never against a a high profile voice actor giving a a five star performance. Gotcha, uh, Leland. Other than Persona Five Royale, which you will be installing in about twenty minutes, um, <laughs> what do you want to play? I, anything in the future on the list? Honestly, I don't have any draw to any of these games. <laughs> I don't know what most of them are. Maybe if I like research them, something might draw me. But like. I, I mean, just these both segments, obviously, I've had very little input, but you ch- listen to you two speak about tra- Star Trek draws me towards those shows that you were talking about way more than listening to the two you talk about these games. So maybe I'm just, they're just, it's just, they're not the games for me, I think. Which is possible, right? Right? Like, oh, yeah, I, don't, I don't think everybody should like every genre. I don't think it's like, oh, I hate these six car racing games. Oh, but this new Gran Turismo, Moby, you're going to love it. It's like, no, at some point (laughs) you realize, no, like I'm just not going to be into this stuff. Maybe that's you. And that's cool. That's totally fair. That's kind of what makes the world go around. Like everybody's not into everything. And that's what makes you an individual. If everybody liked everything or everybody liked the same thing, life would be very boring. And I just, I, I do like the fact that people have so many varied interests or I don't like this for this reason, or I like this for this reason. And I think that's what makes uh, like the game of nerds such a great place to go because something that, you know, Shannon, I think prides the site on is anything you're into, you're going to be able to find somebody who's as passionate or more so than you are. So I don't know. It's always great to to speak to somebody with, differing interests uh obviously speaking for myself and hearing how passionate you know somebody can be about it and getting maybe a glimpse into like what you may be missing out on well i actually think your comment uh was super insightful leland in that we've had two discussions today where you know it was primarily andy and myself able to relate on the the actual um you know topic and discussion but one of those discussions drew you in and the other failed yet i would say that andy and i were passionate about both but only one appeals to you it's 
it's just interesting that way. So, yeah, but I mean, that's all I got on the JRPG topic. I don't know, Andy, if you've got anything you want to want to bring up. I don't really think I, I have anything I want to bring up more than what I've said. Just if you love reading more than likely, you're going to love JRPGs. I'm not saying either one's exclusive of the other, but I, I do believe a love of reading is a, is a bigger factor of why some people like JRPGs. Uh, I have a buddy at work. He calls them the uh, reedy, reedy, clicky clicks. Cause you know, all you do, it's like <laughs> click through the, the text boxes most of the time. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, well, Andy, go ahead and uh, yeah, give us any plug for yourself or where we can find some of your writings and on the Game of Nerds, I'm assuming. Yes. Uh, on the Game of Nerds, i written articles. I just use my name. You can just look up Andy Mangrum. And like I said earlier, I write about Star Trek, Tokusatsu movies, whatnot, nerdy things that I may find interesting. Shannon kind of gave me a... Uh, a loose leash on what I could write about as long as it fits into quote unquote nerdiness. And I'm, I'm good that way. The video content, <laughs> I just created a character for it. So you can look up Mr. Big on the YouTube channel and yeah, I talk more specifically about video games on there, but they're all on the game of nerds, YouTube channel. My articles are all on the game of nerds website. And I do encourage anybody that that might be interested in star Trek, tokusatsu godzilla super sentai or jrpgs and specific video games in general to check it out i i think you would enjoy it and you might end up learning something that you may not have known and that's kind of why i go out of my way for certain youtube channels just even if it's something i maybe not have not played or haven't played in a long time i just sometimes like hearing little mundane facts about things that's awesome well i'll for sure be checking you out there so who knows? You'll likely see a comment from me sooner or later. I look forward to it. I, I've enjoyed talking to you about these two subjects because we seem to be on the same page about things. So admittedly, you know, in, in the future, I'm looking forward to having more conversations and more discussions about things just to uh, just to see where we might line up or have a differing opinion on why I legitimately think one thing or the other. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think that would be interesting too. So you'll, uh, you'll definitely see me around and, uh, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast here. It was excellent. Um, Leland, uh, our end of show stuff. Our website's ttpopcast.com, the TTG podcast on Facebook, TT podcast on Instagram. I'm Leland underscore steel on Twitter. And that is who I've been. And I've been Moby, Leland's foil, not villain. (laughs) (laughs) And I've been Andy, also known as Mr. Big, just enjoying being on the podcast, talking about things I have loved for a large chunk of my life. And it's been a joy having you, Andy, honestly. So uh, thanks a lot. Uh, And with that, I guess we'll say take care, listener. Thanks, listener. Bye-bye. This has been a Sounds of Steel production.